Okay, so if I could ask you all to please open up your Bibles to John 20. John 20, we're going to start with verse 24. We're going to move out to verse 31. John 20, 24 through 31. I know on your bulletins it says uh, that the title today is for... I got the wrong date. It says, Doubting Thomas and Willing Jesus. But as I went through the passage... It was too late to change the bulletin, but I've changed the title too. These have been written so that you may believe. These have been written so you may believe. Today we're going to consider the dramatic, amazing story of the man called Thomas. You guys, most of you probably know him as Doubting Thomas. And we're going to watch him encounter the risen Christ, be transformed by that. You might recall from now... It's been three weeks since we've been in John. But back where we left off, Jesus had risen. He had appeared to Mary. Then he'd appeared to the disciples. And he'd showed them his wounds. And he commissioned them as sent ones. But Thomas wasn't there. So that's where we're picking up. But I want to start today's message in an odd place. I want to start today's message at the end. I want to start today's message at the end of the passage. And I want to do that because the end of the passage is going to tell us why all that we read before the end of the passage exists, what its purpose is. In fact, the end of our text today is going to tell us why the whole gospel of John is here. And here's what the end of our passage today says. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written In this book. But these have been written. So that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that believing. You may have life. In his name. What we're going to read today. Like everything else in John's gospel. Has as its apex. This goal. That you. Would believe. That you would keep believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by continuing to believe, you would have life in his name. You know, much can be gleaned from John's gospel in a secondary sense that's really important. We see Jesus has great compassion in the crowds, and so he feeds them. And so we're ushered into compassion and mercy towards the poor, and that's vital in God's sight. Jesus engages with the adulterous women of John 8 and the Samaritan women in John 4. And we see that Jesus treats the mistreated women and the foreigner with great care and honor and dignity. And so this is the way we should treat all men, the way all men should treat all women. And the way we should think about people of different races and creeds and ethnicities. And of course, we could go on and on and on. But fueling and undergirding all these secondary and important truths in John is this one central, fundamental, indispensable, life-anchoring, hope-securing, hell-destroying, soul-rescuing goal of all that John writes. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life In his name. And this goal is the crashing symbol. At 
the end of the drum roll of today's story of Doubting Thomas. John puts it right there. I believe there's a reason for that that we'll get to. So we need to see all of John and particularly today's story of Thomas in that life. It was written so that we would believe in Jesus. We must believe in Jesus. We must trust in him. We must depend on him. We must see that trust lead to following him because he is our only, our only, our only hope. He is it. We have no other hope. There is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. And the heavens are testifying. I hope that by drawing out this ending goal of John's right here and right now before the passage is going to help us to treasure afresh in a new way the story of Thomas that we're often very familiar with. That we'd see how infinitely important it was for Thomas to get from where he starts to where he ends. And how critically important it is for us to land and stay in that same ending place of belief with Thomas. But most of all, what I want so much is that we would today be filled with renewed hope. As we see how crucial and important our faith is to Jesus. That he cares about our faith. That he works for our faith. So with that set up, let's go through the passage in full. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. God, I am burdened to approach you with the prayer of David in Psalm 19. 
Who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden faults. Forgive our hidden faults. Keep your servants from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over us. Lord, I boldly beg before your throne with my brothers and sisters here for great grace and great mercy to be mediated through our great high priest so that today we would be able to see Jesus afresh with the eyes of our heart that he would dwell afresh in our hearts through faith and overfill us and cleanse us afresh. God, you are so good and you are so able and you are so merciful. You are so long-suffering. And so, Lord, I have faith that you will meet us. And I pray over my brothers and sisters and ask you, Lord, to meet your bride today to cleanse her, embrace her, strengthen her in all the ways that you know your spirit knows how to do. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay. We're going to go as quick as we can without being um, incoherent. (laughs) I'd like us to note a few things in the text this morning, hopefully draw out a few things to take away as we finish. First, let's consider Thomas. Okay, let's, let's consider Thomas. Most of my life, I've considered this to be one of the most, dare I say, charming or warm stories in Scripture. We call him Doubting Thomas. We, we chide him from afar. We use him to give hope to our doubts. Right? It's a heartwarming story. But you know what's really interesting is I read it this time. I recognize there is nothing in this story that says anything about Thomas doubting. I believe it's much more serious than that. I believe Thomas is in a much more critical place. I read this passage and Thomas sounds done. Thomas is past doubting. In the face of two major appearances by Jesus to Mary and then to the other disciples, Thomas is a brick wall. Now, I think there are hints that Thomas is not hardened by a desire not to believe, even though he says, I will never believe unless Jesus meets my conditions. Thomas is not a militant atheist looking to keep Jesus at bay, but he is stuck, I think, in such deep discouragement that he feels he cannot believe. Remember, you might remember, way back in John 11, Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead near Jerusalem, where in Jerusalem, Jesus had just undergone an assassination attempt by stoning. And Thomas looks to the disciples hearing that Jesus is going to head towards Bethesda near Jerusalem. He just says, let's go along with him so that we might die with him. That's a dark statement. Thomas seems to me to be a man bracing for terrible impact. His temperament is postured towards pessimism and hopelessness. And when Jesus is crucified and he rises, the disciples were dejected and filled with fear at the horrifying murder of their Lord. But I don't, my sanctified imagination tells me this hit Thomas maybe the hardest. He's not with the disciples on Easter night. And when Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger in the, in the nails, place my hand in the side, I will never believe. I see Thomas again bracing for another terrible impact. 
that these sightings are, are not true. Even from his close friends, that they're lies or hyp, you know, hypnotic images. He doesn't even want to take a chance and be disappointed. He is done. He's locked in pessimism and discouragement. He's afraid to even take a peek out the door. That may be a glimmer of hope. And we sympathize with Thomas. But listen, Thomas is hard right now. And listen, that's a dangerous place to be. That is not a good place. Thomas is in trouble. There is a curious but powerful verse in Exodus about the Jews and their unbelief when Moses first tells them of God's promise to deliver them. When Moses first tells them of God's promises... Exodus 6, 9 says this. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. Brothers and sisters, aren't there times when some of our, in, our unbelief isn't sourced in, in this determination not to believe, but in a kind of paralysis of discouragement? This kind of self-induced sense that we cannot believe. Now, I don't think this means that Thomas or we are innocent in that place. The Lord not once in his word invites us to wallow in our discouragement and allow it to have more authority over his truth than it should. But he knows we are weak and we get stuck. So what are we going to do? What is Thomas's way out? What's Thomas going to do? Well, the, the answer is, all the Sunday school people said, it's Jesus. So let's, let's, let's move over, because Thomas is stuck in a ditch. But let's see what Jesus does. The next Sunday after Easter, perhaps after a lonely week of wallowing in hopelessness, Thomas comes back to his community, which is always important for our discouraged hearts. And he gets the greatest surprise of his life if Jesus appears through a locked door. Peace be with you. And then he turns his attention on Thomas. And he lets him know that he knows every thought that Thomas has been thinking. He knows every word that Thomas has been saying. He knows. He knows that Thomas is crushed. He knows that Thomas is hard. And he turns to him with tenderness. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Thomas, do not disbelieve. Believe. This is incredible humility and kindness from our Lord. Spurgeon writes of Jesus. He does not say, if he does not choose to believe, he may continue to suffer for his unbelief. No. He fixes his eye upon the doubter and addresses himself specially to him. Yet not in words of reproach or anger, Jesus could bear with Thomas, though Thomas had been a long time with him and had not known him. 
To put his finger into the print of his nails and thrust his hand into his side was much more than any disciple had a right to ask of his divine master. And yet see the condescension of Jesus. Rather than Thomas should suffer from unbelief, Christ will let him take great liberties. Our Lord does not always act towards us according to his own dignity, but according to our necessity. And if we really are so weak that nothing will do but thrusting a hand into his side, he will let us do it. Nor do I wonder at this. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Nor do I wonder at this. If for our sakes he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well permit a hand to follow. If you struggle with unbelief that's rooted in a hardened discouragement this morning, if you wish you would believe better than you do, I want you to take heart this morning. Yes, yes, we have a Savior who is rightly worthy of our belief. And we should fight hard to give him what he deserves. Yes, we have a Lord who justly commands your belief. And we should fight to obey his truth and not our feelings. We also have a sympathetic brother who gives grace and mercy to his struggling siblings to preserve them in belief. And though Jesus' body is not present to us now as it was for Thomas, his spirit is very much present. It is very much here. It is very much in this room this morning. And through the Holy Spirit of Jesus, that same heart of Jesus... With the same humility. He hasn't changed from that day. The same tenderness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same bold love that called to Thomas, touch my wounds so that you can be free from your unbelief. That same Jesus calls out to you. Put out your hand so that you can overcome your unbelief as well. Now, there's no visible side to put our hand into. So what am I saying? Is this just sentimental? How does Jesus do this? Well, first, he does it through his Holy Spirit. But not only his Holy Spirit. The amazing answer is that he helps us through his Holy Spirit. Through people like Thomas. I mean, specifically Thomas and his friends. And I'm not talking about the little train because I just thought of that as soon as I said it. (laughs) I'm talking about the apostles, the disciples, the twelve, the twelve, the twelve. What do I mean? Well, let's go back to this story. Okay, what happens after Jesus invites Thomas to probe his wounds? Remember, a week ago in Thomas's life, he had just confessed the most hardened, most discouraged, most committed, dare I say, most aggressive statement of unbelief among any of the disciples anywhere I can think of. Maybe you got one. I can't. Excepting Judas, who, you know, pretended any, all the time. He said, I will never believe unless I get this from God. But after Jesus shows his wounds to Thomas, Thomas's heart melts. 
in a moment. And Thomas goes from being the greatest hardened, unbelieving disciple to the greatest believing disciple. He proclaims the greatest confession of any disciple in any of the four Gospels when he says, My Lord and my God. No man in John's Gospel, in any of the Gospels, makes this bold a proclamation of the deity of Christ on the spot, on the scene, boots on the ground. You won't find a stronger voice in the whole New Testament than Thomas saying that Jesus is God. You might find statements equal to it. But when you put Lord and God together, Thomas is flat out calling Jesus Yahweh, folks. And this isn't impersonal. This is not impersonal for Thomas. Jesus is my Lord and my God. See, Thomas's belief is healed. It is real. It is saving, not only because he knows who Jesus is now, Lord and God, but because he knows Jesus is his now. My Lord, my God. This is an essential element for us as believers, right? It's not enough to say with demons, Jesus is God. No, we, we must say with Thomas, we long and thirst and hunger and fight to say with Thomas, Jesus is my God. Jesus is my Lord. I am trusting you, Jesus. I am depending on you, Jesus. I want to follow you, Jesus. That's the song of our hearts that the Holy Spirit helps us sing. But watch this. Thomas has now become a convinced, firsthand eyewitness to who Jesus is, the risen Son of God. And this brings me back to to what I mean when I say that Jesus helps us overcome our unbelief through Thomas. And I'm I'm not talking about people who have great faith in your life. They, They are helpful. I mean something much more foundational. What I mean is that God's plan from the start of Jesus' mission was to convince you and I through first-hand eyewitnesses to Jesus. He took these disciples, including Thomas, and he made them first-hand eyewitnesses to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then he sent them to the ends of the earth to testify as eyewitnesses to the crucified and risen Christ. We just read three weeks ago. Remember what did Jesus say? He said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. John 15, 27. You must also testify about me. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Acts 1, 8. You, disciples, will be my witnesses. Peter in Acts 10. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as his witnesses. Finally, John puts his eyewitness so poetically and dramatically in his first letter. You you can just tell that John understands that his mission is unique in all of human history when he says this in his first letter about his eyewitness role. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us, to us that which we have seen 
and heard, we proclaim also to you. Listen, it's wonderful to be a believer, but I don't see and hear and touch and feel like John and Thomas do. And none of us do. And after 2,000 years, this might seem like a strange way to communicate to the world. Witnesses 2,000 years gone. But just watch the miracle under your nose. Folks, do you realize that just about every single Sunday all over the world for 2,000 years, this small band of disciples who were eyewitnesses to the crucified and risen Christ are still doing their job of witnessing to the crucified and risen Christ? What do we do today? All over the earth, gathered with millions of people, we're hearing Thomas and Peter and John and Matthew and Paul saying to us, we saw him, we heard his voice, we, we touched him. And they're saying to you, look at Jesus, look at his wounds. This is your Lord and your God. And, and here's why this is important, okay? That witness is finished. It is never changing. Our Bible is rock solid. No one's going to reinvent something. These were the men who saw and touched and beheld. Our faith is secure. Their testimony is finished. But here's the other beautiful thing. As these men continue to proclaim through the reproclamation of every church every Sunday, the Holy Spirit is using their witness, which we now call the Bible, <laughs> to convince souls every day for the first time or the 4,000th time that Jesus is the crucified and risen Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit of God has made a decision that he will be faithful to these witnesses to work through their testimony. And he is still doing it. As a young believer, I had to fight hard to overcome my unbelief. My, my only unimpeach, unimpeachable refuge was the word of God's witnesses. I had good friends who could tell me things. I could read good books. But my life or death was cut I'm going back to his promises in the word of God. There was something special about that word that nothing competed with. His Holy Spirit was pleased to use it to confirm and to keep me in terrible desperation. Terrible. couple of years of, of horrible doubts. Horrible, horrible fears. Again and again, my faith would be attacked by unbelief. It was extremely painful, depressing, discouraging time. But it was also in time in which, as I went back to the word of God for the testimony of his witnesses across the Bible, for proof, for evidence, for encouragement, that Jesus was who he said he was. His spirit was faithful to meet me. Why is this so important? We come back to the end where we started. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
It is so important because, as we said at the beginning, only through faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God can we have life. The wounds that Thomas eyewitnessed to and now testifies to us about today, these wounds are our only covering for our sin before a holy God, men and women. These wounds testify to us that our sin is so real and so serious to God that he had to horribly punish his son for them. These wounds testify that real judgment is coming for all who will not take refuge in these wounds. All your neighbors and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children who won't take refuge in these wounds, they will face God's judgment. He's not kidding around. But these wounds tell us that they also belong to a risen Savior who is done being wounded for sin because he's paid for it all already. These wounds belong to a resurrected Savior who will raise our bodies from the horror of death and decay to the glory of eternal physical and spiritual life in unending friendship with him and love and tender care. And so I implore you, just like I implore myself, brothers and sisters, we have to keep fighting our unbelief by remembering the witnesses and the wounds of our risen Savior. We can't let go of his word. We have to keep listening to these witnesses in the word of God through which his Holy Spirit has committed to work faith in us. As Paul declares in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you fighting to hear the word of Christ? Are you staying in the word of Christ? Are you running to the word of Christ? I'm not saying don't go to friends and don't go to good books. They, God uses it all, but don't neglect the word of Christ, the testimony of his commissioned witnesses. His spirit works there. It is not in our power to create faith in ourselves or in our lost friends. But it is in his power. And we can ask them to consider the gospel of John. Without shame, because his spirit works there. We can ask them to consider, has God revealed himself to you in it? Is God calling to you through it? And not be ashamed, because his word is blessed by him and his word works by his spirit. If perhaps maybe you're here today and you sense God, and I'll close with this, maybe even for the first time calling you to trust Jesus, I offer these tender words from an old English preacher. Go to him. Tell him you are a wretched, undone soul. Without his sovereign grace, ask him to have mercy on you. Tell him you're determined that if you do perish, that you will perish at the foot of his cross. Go and cling to him as he hangs bleeding there. Look him in the face and say, Jesus, I have no other refuge. If you spurn me, I am lost, but I will never go from you. I will clasp thee in life and clasp thee in death as the only rock of my soul's salvation 
Depend upon it. You shall not be sent empty away. You must. You shall be accepted if you will simply believe. Oh, may God enable you by the divine influence of his Holy Spirit to believe. And then shall we not have to put the question, Oh, thou of little faith, why did you doubt? I pray God now applies these words to your comfort. I know there are brothers and sisters in this room who are fighting discouragement, fighting paralysis of unbelief. If that's you, I want you to feel cared for by this prayer. And if that's not you, I want you to please help me pray for them right now. We're going to close with this, okay?